0: Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great stuff that we can't or won't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new, learn more about what we teach at our live programs by checking out the toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating stuff, attraction material, networking material, negotiation material, Relationship management, breakups, all that stuff that we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And we've got our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, this time around, we've got guys from Israel, Brazil, U.S., Canada, and Europe, although I can't friggin' remember where he is from. I want to say Austria. Should have looked that up. But anyway, as you get a feel, we got an international contingent this week, as usual. Details on our boot camps at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or give us a call here in the office, 888 7177 or email me jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Again, I've got Jason, one of the Jasons anyway, our tech Jason, Jason DeFilippo of Grumpy Old Geeks helping to co-host this one. We're talking with Steven Rambam. This guy was a little, he was salty. What do you think, Jason? He
1: was like a salty private eye. Yes, uh, Steve Rambam is one of my favorite people. He's been a private investigator for 30 years. He's a Nazi hunter for Christ's sakes. I mean, how cool is that? and he's got his own TV show. He's just one of the coolest guys. He speaks at hacker conventions talking about privacy and anonymity. I just love this guy to death. So I was I was tickled pink when you uh, offered to have me come back on this one.
0: Yeah, no, definitely think he's super interesting. We talk a little bit about fraud, but also we get into how fraudsters think some of the kind of advanced frauds and crimes, financial stuff, not like the high market white collar stuff, but like con men conning companies out of tons and tons of stuff and kind of the mindset behind fraudsters and then as well how we can protect ourselves against some of this stuff and man it's always surprising how dumb people have to be to fall for some of this stuff but then some of the stuff is so complicated that I can see anybody I mean even companies that do some of their diligence fall for some of this but as he explains in the show there are ways to protect yourself so enjoy this one with Steve Rambam. First of all, tell us a little bit about your background because you don't just go look on monster.com and go, I think I'll be a private investigator. I mean, do you consider is that what your job title would you'd consider it to be?
2: I'm a director of an investigative agency, but yes, I spend quite a lot of time in the field and uh, I am certainly before anything else, uh, my day job is being a private investigator. And you're correct. You don't, you know, get a an office with a pebble glass door and a leggy secretary and, poof, you're a, you're a private investigator. It requires quite a lot of training, quite a lot of experience. In fact, to get licensed, you have to actually prove the experience to the various states that you want to be licensed in. It's rather difficult. In New York, for example, you have to have three years of experience above the rank of patrolman. You've got to have sworn character affidavits. You're fingerprinted, you're photographed, the state checks you out, the FBI runs your prints, and for every license that you want in every state, you have to go through this again. If you want to do protective work, for example, guarding your witnesses, that's a separate license. If you want to carry a firearm, that's a separate license. If you want to serve process, that's a separate license. It's, uh, it is not for the faint of heart. You really have to uh, wade through a bureaucratic swamp.
0: Wow. Yeah. And, and that's great because most people probably stink at this job. It's probably a tough job to be good at.
2: Not most people. Not most people. Uh, dishonest people. If you are an ethical private investigator, the first thing you do is you say to yourself and you say to others, this is what I'm good at. This is not what I'm good at. A- any private investigator that is the equivalent of a general practitioner, who really claims that they can handle it all is a big fat liar. I mean, you have people who are good in homicide investigation that stink at missing persons. There are people who are great at accident reconstruction who wouldn't know how to debug a room if their life depended on it. Um, you, You know, there are specialists and for very good reasons. I specialize in very large part in missing persons and in international investigations. Uh, I can assure you that the average P.I. is smart enough to admit to himself that he shouldn't go to uh, Wisconsin without a local contact, let alone uh, Gambia. Yeah. Yet are people who today claim that they can do anything, including international investigations. And the truth is they really can't.
0: Wow. So what do you
2: specialize
0: in then in that case?
2: International Investigations and Missing Persons, and by missing persons, I mean all types of missing persons, from the traditional missing kid to fugitive retrieval, you know, colloquially known as bounty hunting, to fraudulent death claims overseas where somebody will go overseas, the person will disappear, supposedly fall into a river or a volcano or off a ship or (laughs) something like that, and the family will say, Oh, my gosh, Uncle Harry's dead. Give us his half a million dollars. I've done some real hardcore missing person stuff, uh, Nazi war crimes investigation, where I had to actually find the Nazis before I tricked them into talking to me.
0: Right. And before they died, because they're all old as
2: hell. Well, it's 25 years ago, and they were not only alive. They were quite proud of having
0: been mass murderers. You know, that was quite an adventure. Who contracted that type of thing? Is that like Simon Wiesenthal Center type stuff? A, the Simon Wiesenthal Center does not actually hunt Nazis. Ah, oh, okay. Despite what the
2: people who've given them half a billion dollars believe. Yeah. Second of all, that's pretty much
0: rule rule number one of PI work: you don't reveal your client. I figured as much, but hey, you know, I'm, I'm a talk show host. I got to ask the questions, regardless of whether or not they're supposed to be answered or not. Sometimes right. a non-answer is more interesting than the answer. Ah, uh,
2: for PIs too.
0: Ah, that's a good point. Just for talk show hosts. But the
2: other thing that I specialize in is what's called sophisticated financial frauds. And frauds of all kinds, which I have to tell you, for the past 20 years has been quite a growth industry. Uh, no PI that does fraud investigation uh, will ever go hungry.
0: Really? Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things that it's easier now to trick people out of their money than to actually make money for yourself.
2: Uh, well, for some people it is
0: for some people, of course. Yeah,
2: I've caught some remarkable fraudsters. I mean, people who were smart and capable and organized. And it really occurred to me that these were people who who were doing it because that's what their particular character was. They couldn't sit in an office. They couldn't do anything else. They had to do this because these are people that frankly could have excelled at anything. These are guys that if they put in 30 years into some legit career, the way they did into becoming the best fraudster on the planet, they would have been a, a Fortune 500 CEO, no question about it.
0: Huh, interesting. What's the most complicated or what are some of the most complicated frauds that you've seen? Like, what are some of the more involved things that would qualify somebody to be an awesome businessman if they weren't so black hat?
2: Oh, my gosh. Selling frauds to large businesses being so good that you can survive some level of due diligence and sucker a hungry, careful, experienced business into giving you a brokerage fee of a half a million dollars and then afterwards
0: getting away with it. Not, not leaving a way for this company to pursue you. Wow, and just and making it look like that something fell through that was beyond your control and still entitles you.
2: That's exactly right, that's exactly right. It wasn't my fault. I gave you the standby letter of credit. I gave you the contact to buy the discounted debentures, a funding confirmation to fund the uh, new factory that you wanna build in Bubawanga, whatever. And you just didn't properly take advantage of it or you didn't generate the other stuff that's needed for this deal to go through so sorry you know best of luck to you and sometimes these guys are so good that they actually
0: managed to take the guy for a second go around wow wow that's incredible but i can see where it would be easy enough to get fooled twice especially if it's like wow this poor guy went through all this trouble well at least he got his fee meanwhile this guy is in cahoots with the whole fake organization
2: right And let me tell you, a lot of it is, if you've ever seen the movie The Sting, a lot of it really is like that. There is this high level international, I'll call it a consortium of fraudsters where you have all over the world, you have really good scam artists that are in a loose association with each other. So, for example, if you do what used to be called a prime bank guarantee fraud, now it's called a funding scam where the roper, the guy who contacts the sucker, is in your hometown. Let's say you're in San Francisco, right? So you are a guy who needs a funding source, or you're a guy who's looking for an investment. And you bump into a guy in a bar or a club or somewhere in San Francisco, and you start just out of the blue talking to, he says, this is amazing. This is what I do. Look, I will hook you up with a broker in Chicago who can take care of this for you. So he passes you on to a guy in Chicago. And the guy in Chicago says, okay, well, I represent so-and-so in London, who's associated with one of the top prime banks in London. They pass you on to this guy in London indirectly who has contacts with London's top prime banks. Anytime you hear the word prime bank, run like mad in the other direction because it's a fraudster term. There's no such thing. So and and in fact these scams are known in, in the law enforcement community as prime bank scam. Okay. So then that person, you've now gone through from San Francisco to Chicago to London. The guy in London generates a bank document for you from Bank de Gang Nagara in, in which is a real bank, by
0: the way. <laughs> okay. I thought you were just really creative with your
2: It's like a joke, yes, I know. I figured I better tell you that. In Indonesia. So You are going to take this bank guarantee, which is essentially a standby letter of credit, and you are going to use it to buy bonds. But the bond dealer never shows up because he's part of the scam. They give him a piece of the action to just disappear. And then finally, he comes back to you one day before the deadline for the letter of credit to expire. And he says, I can't get this for two more weeks, but in two weeks, I can have it. I'm not going to take your money. I've refunded your money. So then the original scammer comes back to you and he says, well, I'm sorry, you only paid for an LC, a letter of credit that's good for 40 weeks. There's two things you can do. We can either let this ride for one more day and I'm sorry, you've lost your money, or we can renew it for another 40 weeks for 50% more. So if you're a big enough sucker, you give them another... $200,000 Two hundred dollars to $500,000 more, depending on what you originally paid. And I can assure you the bond guy never shows up. Or if you realize you've been snookered, what do you do now? You go to the guy in San Francisco. You didn't give him any money. The money went to the guy in Chicago. The guy in Chicago says, I didn't deliver you a document. I passed you on to, uh, to a guy in London, England.
0: Right. I just referred you. Yeah.
2: The guy in London, England says, if you're saying this document isn't legit, I'll certainly check it. Or if you're saying there's been a problem, I'll certainly check it. But it sounds like you didn't perform your end of it. So then you go to the cops. What cops do you go to? You go to San Francisco Police Department. No detective in the San Francisco Police Department is going to want this case. Too complicated, too confusing. Sounds like you need to find a civil remedy. Right. This is a business dispute, not a crime. But let's say magically you find the one cop in 10 million, local cop, that will take this case. Or let's say you go to the FBI and they don't ignore you like they ignore everyone who's not a congressman. Right. Where did the crime occur? Did it occur in San Francisco? Did it occur in Chicago? Did it occur in London? Did it occur? Was it a fraudulent bank document? in indonesia i mean are all of these other people suckers also and there's some big master criminal issuing fake bank documents in indonesia it is a nightmare to investigate it's a nightmare to get courtroom quality introducible evidence and it's a bigger nightmare to actually put your hands on somebody to prosecute
0: right and of course at the end of the day even if you did get all that stuff in order somehow nobody really has an interest in helping you unless you're going to pay probably more than you lost because the victim of this crime is some rich investor guy so there's no public or anything.
2: Well, fortunately, that's not true. This type of scam can usually be cleaned up for about 30 grand. Oh, really? Yeah. The question is the question is getting your money back. That's the issue.
0: Yeah, sure. You can hire a lawyer for 30 grand and then you come back and you say, see, I won. I'm morally right. And they go, great. Well, we're not giving you your money. It's in Indonesia, maybe.
2: You know, that's that. That, frankly, is worthy of a whole nother show that you should do. Sure. About actually collecting debts. It makes me nuts when I watch these legal shows on TV and you see at the end of the trial, uh, the the poor uh, you know, widows and orphans have gotten a five million dollar judgment against the big, mean Scrooge of a defrauder. And the woman jumps up crying, hugs her lawyer, her lawyer's big, beaming smile. They never show what happens next. Now you got to find the fraudster. Now you got to find the fraudster's assets. Now you got to seize the fraudster's assets. If the fraudster is in a state like Texas, you can't take his house. You can't take his car, his truck you can't take 30,000 from his bank account. I mean there's so many things that you can't do. The truth is, you know, a judgment is very often not even worth the paper it's written on.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I can see that.
2: This is a country that is the garden of eden for bad guys, for financial fraudsters. I mean for bad guys in general. And I have to tell you as a private investigator, it's not that I'm pumping up the PI profession, but the fact of the matter is that PIs fulfill a critical role in the justice community. There are a million instances, probably literally a million instances every year where people fall between the cracks and issues and incidents fall between the cracks and law enforcement can't pursue them or just won't pursue them because they have to do law enforcement triage. They're not gonna go Pursue a guy in a nonviolent crime where some big company's been hurt when they've got four murders, a rape, and a bank robbery sitting on their desk that they're still working on so it it really is you know cop triage I mean private investigators grab these guys, bring them to justice, recover the money, private investigators find missing kids, you know put bad guys in jail, get innocent people out of jail. There are countless things that are not done or can't be done by law enforcement that PIs step in on. And this is one of the biggies. Going after fraudsters is one of the
1: biggies. Excellent. Yeah, one of the things I'd like to talk about is kind of the anatomy of the fraudster and how they use like their charm and their social engineering to actually get the victims.
2: Absolutely. The fraudster has nothing to sell except for one thing, himself, his charm. He is selling himself. There is no real product that's going to be handed to you by the fraudster. What he's selling is his ability to bamboozle you. Now, now, a lot of this is psychological judo. The sucker out there is somebody who is predisposed to looking for something for nothing or really wants to believe that they're in on some secret, obscure uh, you know, banking program run by the Illuminati or something like I mean just some ridiculous, obscure program that nobody knows about, but because they 've lived a good life somehow they 've tripped over this. Rex stout, uh, the guy who wrote all the N- Nero Wolf books, had a great line he says you can 't take somebody for a ride unless they 've already got a ticket in their pocket or at least they 've been checking timetables, and it 's really true. These people that get suckered more often than not, they've got a little bit of the hustler in them, too. Now, I'm not going to tell you that completely innocent, completely decent people don't get hustled. They do. But those are typically what's called affinity frauds. They get screwed by a member of their own family. Or I'm doing a case right now where there's an Orthodox Jewish guy who has taken about 100 Orthodox Jewish families. He's a member of this tightly knit community, and they believed him. This guy wouldn't screw us. We can trust him. So they gave him money. You see a lot of church affinity frauds, including where the pastor of the church is the bad guy. Give 10000 or 15000 to the building fund, and the building fund turns out to be for, for his house in Aruba. There's a famous case from about a year ago where a blind person took a bunch of blind people.
0: Wow, that's depressing.
2: Well, it kind of is, I guess. <laughs> or you got to figure, hey, this this blind guy really reentered society, didn't he? Yeah. Wow. But affinity frauds, where there's already some connection between the bad guy and the vix and the victims, that's very, very common. And that's where you see the people who are really decent people getting screwed. Yellow Kid Wheel, Joseph Wheel, during the twenties and thirties, he was the guy that the movie The Sting was based on. And everybody he hustled and everybody he took was already halfway towards joining in on that scam. You know, people who were trying to cheat on their taxes, people who believed that they were getting a tip on a racehorse. I mean, he took $8 million doing that back in the day when people lived on less than $1,000 a year.
0: Now, back to the show. So you investigate this stuff. How did you get into this in the first place? I mean, it kind of goes in, l- in line with what you were saying. You got to have a little bit of the hustle in you. You just decided to help people instead of screwing them out of their money.
2: Oh, I would, I, would make, I would make an excellent fraud. Yeah, of course. I would make a great fraudster. I would cut out a lot of the middlemen. I would already have three or four identities of my own. And I would say, let me call Bob. And I would be Bob. Fortunately, or maybe unfortunately for me, I don't know, but fortunately for everyone, probably me included, I'm not predisposed in that direction. I had a job overseas. I was rather good at it and came back to the U.S., uh, started doing mostly missing persons and witness location and fugitive location. That was something that I was already experienced in at that point. And then I learned about all of these various frauds. And got extremely interested in it, Uh, went out, got a business degree, took the training to become a certified fraud examiner, uh, which is a very, very important credential. The CFE got some other credentials and dipped my toe in the water. And now it's a big part of what I do. It's probably a a third of what I do.
1: I heard on another show that uh, you really dug your uh, feet in with uh, farm equipment, like farm equipment Uh, thefts in Texas.
2: that was an accident that okay. was an accident when i came back from overseas i was uh sitting around not doing much and got a call from a buddy of mine who was down in texas he said hey uh why don't you come down and visit me I said uh, yeah okay why <laughs> and he said uh, well in my area and he was right on the border he was in what's called the valley in texas right on the Mexican border. He says, guys are coming across the border with flatbeds and they're loading up farm equipment and driving it back into, uh, into Mexico. And in one night, a farm is losing a couple of hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment. Now it's probably a million dollar piece of equipment. He said, come on down here, help us catch the guys. You know, I promise you all the beer you can drink. And I had nothing to do, got on a plane. Back then it was People Express. I don't know if you remember that got on a people express flight. He picked me up at the airport, drove about four hours down to where he was, had a lot of fun for a couple of nights, about the fourth or fifth night. We caught a couple of these guys. You know, this was not the most sophisticated security operation we were running. We didn't even have handcuffs or anything. We had basically some old shotguns and we were sitting around in the dark waiting for them to show up. So we tied them up with ropes and wire and called the sheriff's department about an hour later. The deputy sheriff comes. He's driving an old car with one of those gumball red lights on the top. And he comes and he's, hey, how are you? And uh, looks at me, says, you're not from around here. I said, no, no, I'm just visiting my friend here. And he said, "Uh, okay, uh, but you're holding a shotgun. I said, yeah, I'm just holding it for him while he's busy, you know, tying people up. Oh, okay, sure. So they arrested the guys. Off they went. Another robbery the next night. So I stayed down there, and about four days after that, we catch somebody else. Same deputy comes. Oh, you're still here. You're still holding a shotgun. And yeah, I'm just hanging out. So the third time, I think we caught somebody. Maybe it was the second time, probably the third time. The sheriff himself comes out, and he says, Now, so I got your name uh, from my deputy's report, and I, and I rang you. And apparently, you're not a criminal. You used to be an interesting guy, and uh, I'm going to make a deal with you you can apply for a security company license in texas or i'm going to take you to jail (laughs) i said what huh he says what you're doing in texas you cannot do in texas without a license you can't be hanging around with a gun grabbing people who are robbing places you need a license for that in texas and i thought he was kidding because you know i watch cowboy movies i know you can do this yeah don wayne never went down to the county clerk's office and got a license to be John Wayne. But apparently things have changed. Yeah, wow. The next morning I went down to the uh, sheriff's office and he had all the forms there and he signed as the chief law enforcement officer of the county and I used my friend uh, Kinky's address as my office address, uh, cause he was the only guy I was really close with in Texas at that point. And I took out a PI license and a, uh, I applied for security guard license and a PI license. I applied for the P.I. license first because I I felt like I was more of a P.I. <laughs> but, yeah. Through some enormous mistake on the part of Texas, they gave me a license. Now, 30 years later, literally, I'm starting about my 30th year with a license. I'm licensed in, in Louisiana and in New York and permits to work in some other countries and I could have ended up doing anything else. I mean, I was supposed to, when I came back to the real world, I was supposed to actually go to medical school. Boy, am I glad I didn't do that. I've been a terrible
0: proctologist.
2: <laughs> so that's sort of what I do now in some cases. Yeah. Investigate deeply. Yes, I do. <laughs> but but no, no rubber glove needed.
1: No. So uh, this brings me to my next question, where you definitely are a field guy. If you're working out in Texas, holding shotguns on people who are stealing farm equipment, you're not the kind of PI that sits behind a desk and no, just types all day. You're kind of, not, you're definitely a field not, guy.
2: That's not typical PI stuff either. I mean, not a whole lot of shotguns involved in PI work ever. You know, when I train new investigators, which I do sometimes, I tell them it's not like on TV where, you're gonna be throwing people through windows or pulling guns. If anybody's gone flying through a window or you find yourself with a gun in your head, you've screwed up. You have screwed up. You have not done enough advanced planning. Uh, You have not listened to the little voice in the back of your head that's going, don't be an idiot, don't go there, bring backup. You gotta listen to that little voice. And I've gotta tell you, I mean, I've carried a gun for most, if not all, of my adult life. Most of it even even did so legally, and thank God I have never had to uh, shoot anybody on the job, and that's because if you present yourself properly, if you plan in advance, if you know who you're going to be talking to, if you don't act like an idiot, the situation will not arise. Now, I, I mean, I do carry a firearm, and that's because nothing's 100%. When I'm in the old detective's home, when I'm done with this career, and I'm in the old P.I.'s, uh, you know, residence, that I'll be able to say I've never had to draw a gun on anybody.
1: Well, it seems to me like you use rapport over bullets, because from what I've seen from your TV show and how you interact with people and going to investigate the crimes that you're investigating or just, you know, looking at people, you build pretty much instant rapport with people to get the information that you need to move you know, the investigation it, it, forward.
2: You know what? The art of charm, nice <laughs> to uh, borrow know. a phrase, is uh, definitely the key skill, the key resource that an investigator has to have. I mean, there's a big divide between two groups of investigators. The first group are the old guys, the old hairbags, the old retired cops, the people that have been around since the days dinosaurs walked the earth. And a lot of these guys are not computer literate. They know how to turn on a computer and use you know, Word and, and type, a, uh, type a report and check their email and that's it. Then you've got people from the next generation. This generation switchover took place about 25 years ago. And the people in the next generation are geeks. They know everything you need to know about checking a database, you know, doing what's called Google foo, you know, using Google to background somebody, going in the dark web doing everything, and these guys are terrific online, but if they had to go and knock on a door and deal with without preparation whoever it is that opened the door and get that unknown person to tell them whatever they needed to know, they're lost. I'm a really, really lucky guy. I became a PI at exactly the right moment. I had about six years in before this switchover started happening. So everything that I learned, I learned analog. I know how to knock on doors. I know how to talk to people. I know how to look through paper files. I know how to do everything that is the real basis of PI work. And then when the switchover happened, I made sure that I knew enough about the computer world and enough about the online world. And I do know enough that, in fact, I'm a guest speaker at hacker conferences all the time.
1: I actually wanted to ask you about that because I was at the Hope where you were arrested. Oh, and you were? Yeah, I was there. So was it entertaining for you? It was. My my ex-girlfriend uh, worked for 2600, and that was the buzz of the day for sure.
2: Oh, <laughs> so. isn't that wonderful? Well, I, I think you need to tell your listeners before they go, wait a second, this guy was arrested, that A, the charges were dropped pretty much instantly, B, one of the FBI agents who was behind phonying up the cause for me being arrested is Michael Grimm, who is himself going to jail in the very near future. You know, and we ended up either putting everybody involved in jail or as as the expression goes, returning them to the private sector. <laughs> That were, that the two federal prosecutors that were suckers enough to have backed this boneheaded play themselves lost their jobs still today without criminal convictions and a licensed PI. You, by the way, you cannot be a, a private investigator if you have a criminal record. Wait, why did you get arrested? I'm
0: so confused. I'm not in the loop on this.
2: Okay. But you want to talk about fraudsters? This is a great art of charm story. All right. There was a guy by the name of Joseph Myers. Joseph Myers was a mental patient in Detroit, Michigan. Joseph Myers got out of the mental institution, didn't really have much he could do for gainful employment, so he decided to be a criminal. When he got arrested for a big, big charge, he was smart enough, just smart enough to say, maybe I shouldn't just be a criminal, maybe I should be an informant. So the FBI lives and dies on a few things and it's not good police work they live and die on the fact that they have an unlimited amount of money so they can pay for anything they live and die on forensic stuff they really do have a very fine lab and tech guys but especially they live and die on informants they have thousands and tens of thousands of informants and their top informants the guys that they keep going back to time and time again and who bring them new cases all the time are called top echelon informants. An attorney, a former prosecutor, came to a client of mine because he had been arrested and he has no idea why. He was arrested for money laundering. And a guy by the name of Franz Joseph von Habsburg Lothringen. Wow. The Duke of Austria had introduced him to a guy who turned out to be an FBI agent, by the way, got him in all kinds of bogus trouble, and then disappeared. My client, the law firm representing this former prosecutor, now defendant himself, said to me, the key to this is finding out who the heck is this Habsburg prince. Find him and question him and see what the hell the deal is and background him. It was a tough case. After about four weeks of solid investigation, what did I find out? That Franz Joseph von Habsburg Lothringen was the aforementioned Joseph Meyers mental patient. And the FBI had taken him under their wing, had gotten his criminal record submarine—and he had been arrested a bunch of times—had gotten him a new driver's license and passport and everything you could think of under the name of Franz Joseph von Hopsburg Lothringen and let him scam and lie and steal and enmesh himself in the criminal underground just so long as he would throw them a bone from time to time.
0: Wow. Uh,
2: Not just wow, but what a damn disgrace for what is in theory the nation's premier law enforcement agency to be involved in. And let me tell you, this is not so uncommon.
1: I was going to say I'd like to jump in here and say that I've been caught up in this exact same thing With an FBI informant, when I was young, I had somebody who came to me who was a prince from Cameroon, and this was in the 90s, and I was broke, I was poor, I was stupid, and I did some very stupid things because this guy was so charming, and he turned me on the wrong side, and I was co-debated. Well, most
2: of the people that get arrested as a result of these informants don't even rise to the level of what you describe you did, which is being dumb. Most of them are genuinely innocent. Their only mistake was having shaken hands with one of these guys. That's basically the core of FBI informants. They go out and as soon as they touch you, you're dead. And it's a horrible thing for me to say as an investigator. I'm not anti-law enforcement. I mean, quite the opposite. These people are my colleagues and my comrades. You know, if a guy from the DEA or the CIA or the Secret Service or the IRS CID or the Marshals or whatever, calls me up on the phone and says, do me a favor, I do it instantly. But the FBI are really a whole different ball of wax. After I found out all this information on the prints, as we call them, the FBI got really, really mad. And they served me a subpoena for my file, which is absolutely illegal. You don't get to subpoena a defense investigator. It's, It's attorney work product. It's protected the same way you don't subpoena the attorney's file so a federal magistrate quashed their subpoena literally in, in i think it took five minutes so they got really really mad they waited till the trial judge went on uh, vacation and they busted into a conference the hope conference in front of 2500 people they came in with a raid team you know the guys with the heavy weapons and the jackets that say fbi and uh, and they hold me out of there in handcuffs
0: and and everybody there was like oh thank god it's not me
2: <laughs> no, that's not true. I mean, uh, probably 100 people who were in the audience were cops and investigators who had come to hear me talk. So I, I believe me, there were more legal guns in there than the ones the FBI had many, many more times.
1: It actually really made spot the Fed pretty easy because they walked in with FBI jack. It's everybody who yeah. spot the Fed that day.
2: The Fed, there you go. So uh, my friend Bob Kolakowski was involved in the case with me. He's a retired cop out in Detroit. And I thought this was going to destroy me. I thought it was going to destroy my career. You know, there's a dirtbag that writes for the Washington Post by the name of Brian Krebs, who wrote the whole story up and refused to write that the charges were dropped because it wouldn't have read that interestingly. And I thought that I was screwed. I mean, when the Washington Post says you're a criminal, well, I mean, they got Nixon, so you must be a criminal. Not only did it not ruin my uh, business, but I probably had in the following year a hundred or 200 law firms calling me up and wanting to hire me saying, geez, we've never had a PI that would go to jail to keep the file secret.
0: All right, back to the show.
2: It's like, well, you know, let's not test this again, but yes. (laughs) So, I mean, my business, two years later, was double what it had been. And Bob says, you know, if you could get arrested every five years, you'd be a billionaire.
0: Yeah, no kidding. That is amazing. You know, they they thought it was going to ruin your career, too. But the the thing they didn't realize is the more persona non grata you are, according to any sort of official body, the more cred that gives you at any hacker conference.
2: Well, look, hackers are my friends, and, and we learn a lot from each other, but they are not my usual uh, clients, my usual clients are uh, other investigators or insurance carriers or or for that matter, uh, law enforcement agencies.
0: Yeah, I don't mean that you'd get clients directly. They're not looking for street credit hacker conferences. No, but it gets your name out there all over the web as, as the guy, as, as legit.
2: That's, a, that's absolutely true.
0: Why do you speak at, at hacker conferences like 2600 and, and Hope then? I speak on things of mutual interest, like keeping information open and privacy
2: issues. Certainly, IT security issues. I'm speaking. Uh, in fact, uh, let me give a shout out to some guys. I'm speaking at at B sides Vancouver. If any of your listeners are uh, on the west coast of Canada, I'm speaking there
0: mid March. Nice. Yeah, tons of people who listen to this show go to these things too. So, and now, and I mean, now that I'm doing the uh, the TV stuff, which Yeah, tell us about your show.
2: Well, it it almost didn't happen. I mean, I had to make a career decision. I'm still not 100% sure I made the right decision, but, you know, I'm working on it. You know, I did a ton of undercover stuff over the years. And when you decide to do a TV show, obviously, unless you're a moron, you have to realize that you're not going to be doing much undercover in the future. So I made that decision that I was going to dump the undercover stuff except for real you know, short-term undercover pretext investigations where you show up and you play your role and you get the information on the spot. You don't go back for a second bite of the apple. Uh, I agreed to take the show and Discovery ID said, all right, we'll do a deal with you. The first season needs to be mostly reenactments. You get to do some real stuff, but a lot of the witness interviews and things like that, we're not going to put it on air. And I said, that's great. Because a lot of the people, you can't actually show their faces. So season one, and the show's called Nowhere to Hide, season one went really, really well. We were number one, four nights, and number two, two nights. Which is okay, because one of the nights we were only number two was Super Bowl. Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't disturb me that that drew off a lot of viewers. So now we're filming season two, and we're doing a lot of live stuff, a lot of live stuff. And I got to tell you, these are some of the craziest cases I've ever worked. There's a rock and roll, funkadelic guy, real famous guy from the 70s. If I if I told you his name, you wouldn't believe it. We had to track him down and get his DNA uh, to prove that his daughter was was legally an American. She was about to get out of the U.S. She had lived here a whole life. She had four kids born in America, married to an American guy, Social Security number, paid her taxes. Her kids are finally grown. They She takes her first vacation with her husband, takes a cruise to Canada, comes back in. And the uh, immigration people say, where do you think you're going? She says, well, home to North Carolina. No, you're not. You're not an American. What are you, crazy? And they say, well, you know, we see a Canadian Canadian. If your dad was an American, we don't know who he is. You know, we will parole you to the U.S. for 90 days you can get your paperwork together no big deal this happens a lot and by the way this happens probably 10,000 times a year uh people who've always thought they were americans trying to come back into america and being told uh, get lost wow obviously a pretty horrible horrifying thing for them they interview her and they ask her a trick question they say have you ever voted She says, of course, I voted. I'm a proud American. They say, well, you committed a felony by voting. Now you're not eligible to be a paroled citizen.
0: Oh, my God.
2: It 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 was a nasty trick. So now the only thing that she could do was find her father, prove that her father was an American citizen, and then they would have to give her citizenship. And we had to find the father. So that's one great episode uh yeah crazy, crazy case,
0: yeah, man, I mean, I thought i my audio problems were stressful, <laughs> you know <laughs> so,
2: let me tell you another one is a great fraud case. This poor woman she's on the internet, and she gets a pop up on Facebook. Hey, uh, I've been looking at your profile. I mean, you look kind of cute or whatever, whole romance scam starts. She never meets the guy, and on the phone and on the internet. This guy romances her and proposes to her. And he's supposedly a guy in the army. He's in Afghanistan. He's getting ready to go home on leave. And bit by bit, he suckers her into sending more and more and more money. And this is just a nice woman who's looking for romance, looking for love, looking for a husband. She's 41 years old. She's getting a little nervous about, you know, is she going to die alone? This guy scams her out of a ton of money. You know, I need a phone sent to me. Uh, I need this, I need that. Uh, I have to pay $1,500 into the army for a past debt before they'll let me go on leave, send me money for a ticket. Finally, she was about to wire $2,300 to this guy, and Western Union stopped it. And they said, We notice a fraud pattern. We just want to counsel you. And normally, you know, be like, What the hell are you doing? Messing with my business—that's
0: cool. They did that.
2: Well, it really—in this case, it is. It's kind of troubling that they watch the transaction so close. That's—that's
1: that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's troubling. Yeah, they got that much introspection. Yeah,
2: right. It's definitely a privacy issue. But in this case, it paid off because she said, "You know, they told her this doesn't look right. We see this all the time." She called me out of the blue, and she said, "Am I being suckered?" It took me less than two days, to find out that this was a Nigerian scam. It's called a 419 scam. Well, this isn't technically a 419 scam, but it is a Nigerian scam. Organized that in Nigeria. That's where all the money was ending up. By looking at the fraudsters, I was able to see that they had hit more than 50 other women. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be a big case. This is about to be a big case. Uh, If it hadn't already been solved, I wouldn't be talking about it. FBI are not my favorite people, but they're the right guys for this. We're going to probably involve them. We're going to certainly involve, you know, the military police, their criminal investigative division, or whoever else is responsible. We're going to round up these guys. And also, there's a lot of people who are being suckered as money transmitters. You know, these guys are so sophisticated. It really is the art of charm. Not only do they charm these women, but so you're a sucker. Where are you going to send your money to? without the fraudster being identified. right? What they do is they find these small businesses, for example, we found one that they're using in Michigan, and they say, uh, we wanna go in partnership with you. We're looking for businesses that are there in the US that can handle our business, that will be responsible for shipping stuff, that will receipt money for us, so that we know it's actually been received because a lot of people lie to us, they've sent international wires, If you will receive money for us, we will let you keep fifteen percent of this money.
0: I get this stuff for Art of Charm because I'm part of the legal contact here.
2: Well, there you go. And boy, I tell you, so many lawyers have been suckered with this, which kind of makes me, you know, laugh up my sleeve a little bit, guys. But but it's 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 not nice. A lot of them are decent, you know, sole practitioners who can't afford either the monetary loss or the disgrace. But what happens is. You know, you've obviously never gotten enmeshed in one of these frauds. No. Thank God. But let me tell you, here's how it would work. They would tell you, you're going to be getting $10,523 from Bob Jones. After you get that, deduct 15%, send the rest onward to us. And there are people, private people, law firms, businesses, whatnot, who do this. And after they've receded God knows how much, they send it on to this guy. And these poor guys are now responsible for every penny of this.
0: Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So
2: there's two victims for the price of one.
0: Because they basically wash the money by letting somebody else take the secondary risk on top of it.
2: By the time they've sent this money to uh, Croatia or Latvia or South Africa or wherever these Nigerian guys, and it is typically Nigerian guys, but it can be any fraudster. The Russians are real big in this now. Latvians are some of the best fraudsters I've ever seen. Anyway, it's somebody overseas. They've got a way to receipt the money. They receipt the money, and then poof, they're gone.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, Steve, what kind of tips can you give our audience to avoid these kind of fraudsters and just, you know, be safe?
2: First of all, there is no fraud that can survive real due diligence, real investigation. Let's talk about Bernie Madoff. If I was investing in Bernie Madoff and I investigated him, I would have never given him a penny. Why? Two things. First of all, every year the stock market went up, down, up, down, big wild swings. But every year somehow Bernie Madoff managed to report 8 9 10 11% earnings. The stock market didn't affect him. He was literally bigger than the stock market. Not possible. Not possible. I can tell you I was doing a fraud case with a guy from the SEC because the SEC was involved because of, of issuing of unregistered securities, fake bonds. A guy came to me, and this is way before Madoff was arrested. He says, I know that you're involved in the Jewish community. You ever hear of this guy, Bernie Madoff? I heard said, Yeah. I've heard the charities that, you know invest through him. And he says, and he drew on a piece of paper, he drew a line. And then he says, this is the stock market, up, down, up, down, up, down. He says, this is Bernie Madoff and he, for the past 10 years, and he drew 10 lines the same height. He says, I don't know how this is possible. So that's your first clue. The second clue was Bernie Madoff was doing hundreds of billions of dollars of trades, but his auditor was a guy with a small two-room office in a mini mall in upstate New York that wasn't there three days a week.
0: Oh, my gosh.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look into the Bernie Madoff scenario, if you look into how he was able to do this, you'll go, WTF, how is this possible? It's not. Every fraud can be busted by basic due diligence. I mean, I had a wonderful couple call me from Montreal two weeks ago, and they were being told to wire $15,000 to pay bank fees so that their friend could send them 13 million dollars i was unable to explain to them that there is no legitimate bank this is bank agricole in paris mm-hmm. there is no legitimate bank in the world that if there's 13 million dollars sitting in the account they're not going to just deduct the bank fees and send the rest
0: right yeah no kidding
2: but these people didn't believe it so they sent the fifteen thousand, and then they called me and they said you know, we haven't received the money. We want you to go to Paris and collect it. And I said, there's no money to collect. Was it a kidnapping setup? It was just people who were suckers. They Uh were being told that somebody had left them a ton of money and that the money would only go to them after they paid the banking fees.
0: Unbelievable.
2: And they fell for it. And I've got to tell you, this is done all the time. I don't care what Obama says. This is not a happy economy right now. People are desperate, businesses are desperate, people need sources of funding, people need sources of funds, people need jobs, people need, times are still tough for the average guy. You know, businesses are not completely recovered in most cases. Fraudsters are able to use this desperation against the very people who can't afford to be taken. People wanna believe, you know what, don't believe. Don't believe. If you don't know how to check something out yourself, hire a professional, hire a CPA, hire a forensic accountant, hire a forensic auditor, hire a private investigator, hire a certified fraud examiner, hire an attorney. I mean, if that person makes a mistake, at least you've got somebody right there with money that you can actually sue. And that really is a consideration. Try to get a a couple of third parties that are vouching for it that you can go after if you decide to invest. But mostly, you know, I'm not going to say if it seems too good to be true, it isn't. Because in the investigative community, we say if it seems too good
0: to be true, the guy's an amateur. Yeah, the guy's an amateur. I mean, I got to ask you this one last thing. You know, I get these emails every – I am in my spam folder, I actually check my spam folder. Everybody gets these emails. But it's like, hi – I am Lieutenant Colonel Sanders from the USA Army, and I found gold bullion of $2 million. If you send me transportation costs, I can send you X dollars. And I'm just like, how freaking stupid do you have to be to not see just all of this?
2: Probably 10 people will send him the money. He'll send out 5 million emails, and he'll pay somebody to send it out, and probably 10 people will send him the money which is more than the average guy in Nigeria makes in a couple of years.
0: Yeah, so it doesn't matter,
2: right? And by the way, there are sucker lists, what used to be called trick books, sucker lists, scam lists, where if you've been taken once, they go after you again and again. And then when you reach a certain scammer-determined threshold, then a second group of scammers comes in on you. Have you been defrauded? We can help. We can catch the guys, we can collect your money, and it's a new group of fraudsters.
0: Right, because you're so angry, then you're not thinking clearly, and you're like, you know what? I'll give you 10 grand just to screw these people over.
2: Yeah. Right, and it's other fraudsters. Which, by the way, it is very, very important that when you hire an investigator, or a counselor, or a lawyer, or somebody, verify the license. There are guys out there pretending to be private investigators it is a tough rigorous thing to be a private investigator and there are dozens of people arrested every year who are fake pis it's actually a criminal offense i mean in california where you are i think they're raising it from the top level uh, uh misdemeanor to a felony new york it's being raised from an a misdemeanor to an e felony Thanks to uh, a group called Aldenies, the association in New York, make sure that you're not being suckered for a second time.
0: Excellent, thank you so much, Jason. You got anything else?
1: No, I just I'm I'm so happy to talk to you, and I just want to tell everybody to check out uh, Steve's talk on uh, Hope at HopeX. Uh, You've lost privacy. Now they're taking anonymity. Is one of the best talks that you're ever going to see on the internet. Period. And
2: everybody listening to this podcast should send their checks and money orders to p.o box no 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 no. i won't i won't do that i'm tempted my website is pelorium.com that's p as in peter a double dot our phone number i won't be the guy answering but our phone number is 212-969-0286 the show is nowhere to hide and uh, by the way if you are an investigator Uh, law enforcement or security specialists listening to this. I'm involved in a great new organization called the Fraternal Order of Investigators. We're going to be putting on seminars and training sessions, and we would love to have you come in and tell us what we're doing wrong.
1: Are those open to the public? Are they only open to licensed investigators?
2: Uh, Depends on the class. Probably 70% of the classes will be open to uh, anyone who does not screen as a knucklehead I mean we do we do screen <laughs> we do screen attendees I'm, we're not going to have somebody with a criminal record coming in and learning forensics from us the books will be available to the world we already are publishing books on Amazon and uh, and iTunes we've decided not to do Google Play uh, mainly because they're Google we will have these books out for download and available for hard copies to the world, nothing confidential. Uh, I mean, stuff that's remarkably interesting, but nothing that you couldn't research yourself. The classes will be, in general, open to the general public. Probably about seventy of them. We are going to be screening people. If you're an attorney, if you're an accountant, if you're an investigator, if you're a security specialist, if you're a, a business owner. In other words, if you are a a normal, reputable person, we would be delighted to have you attend. But if you are a uh, a scammer or a crook or a knucklehead, please don't waste our time.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much Steve, much appreciated. Thank you. That was a good one. I you know, I can imagine him sitting on this farm or whatever in Texas with like a shotgun and the sheriff showing up and being like, "Yeah, I don't think so, guys. Get this New Yorker out of my jurisdiction
1: or or make him legit."
0: That was such a cool story, wasn't it? It was, and I can, I can totally see how the sheriff was like, listen, man, I can't let you sit here operating straight-up vigilante-style. He is a salty guy, man. Like, I wouldn't want to mess with a guy like that, for sure. But, you know, one thing I thought was pretty cool was the fact that, like, there's people like him out there where if you need something found or done, there's not a whole lot of people you can call
1: that are going to be capable of doing that. Oh, definitely. And the, the private investigators that you think of from the movies are not like what real PIs are like, and that's what one of the cool parts is about talking to this guy is that you really kind of get a sense of what they do and how integral they are to the actual justice system. When the, when the cops aren't going to help you, you, you call a guy like Rombaum, and he's going to go out and work for you and, and either find the people that took your money or get it back or, you know, it's just very cool. It's like the A-Team without Mr. T. Yeah, Exactly. If you have a problem, and if no
0: one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire Steve Rambam. (laughs) Excellent stuff. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, like Steve was, let us know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Jason, you suggested this guy, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's got a TV show on the ID network called Nowhere to Hide, and I've seen him speak at 2600 before uh, for the Hope Conference. So he's got a new season coming out. Check him out. And uh, we'll have links to all of his stuff in the show notes. He was super cool. I'm so glad we could get him on.
0: Excellent. And, of course, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Steve on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And boot camp details for our live programs at theartofcharm.com slash boot camp. If you're listening but you're not subscribed, get that handled. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at the Art of Charm slash iPhone, slash Android, whatever platform you're on. And uh, review us in iTunes, because dang, you know, there's a lot of crap shows out there that are getting reviews. We could use your back. We need you guys who love the show to voice up there as well. Special thanks to Jason's for their help in production, slash co-hosting of the Art of Charm podcast. And go ahead and tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Have a great week. Leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at the theartofcharmpodcast.com.